Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Ian McGilchrist. Ian is an author, psychiatrist and former Oxford literary scholar. He came to prominence with his publication The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. His latest book is called The Matter with Things and is coming out on the 9th of November and is available to pre-order right now. The link is in the description. I'm speaking quietly because... Um, our cat Beat was in here giving birth. She's had one kitten already. We will provide images and perhaps even video. You're right, Jen. Yes. My <laughs> wife's in here as well. You're right, Laura. Very welcome. Laura's <laughs> mid helping with the midwifery of this new creature of the Lord, this new little litter. Just in case you're wondering, we uh, are able to take care of these kittens and stuff. So you don't need to worry. Um, Jen. Yeah. How you been? Good. Have a nice night? Yeah, it was great. Where'd you go? Portobello Market. Portobello Market? What'd you do there? Had some sushi. What, was, what place did you go? I want to give them a plug. Bertie Blossoms. Was it nice in Bertie Blossoms? Yeah, it's incredible. Who, why? What do you mean? It's just it's, the food was amazing. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> the bar, mostly. Did you fall in love with someone or something? No. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not? No. We have a couple of trip traps. Was it like when you're trip trapping around Norwich? Trip trapping. Well, we went trip trapping on a date around Norwich. <laughs> it that was time. on a date. It was like groups of people, and I was invited by the people who owned it. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. they, um, everyone was having fish sushi, but she made me a very nice vegetarian sushi. That's nice. Well done with sticking with the vegetarianism yeah. or veganism. Yeah. Well done, Jen. Well done. It was yeah, it's good. It's weird being there. I'm not used to being sat outside in London eating. What was it? Why? What's weird about it? This feels very other country. Feels very other country. <laughs> like Italy or something. Does it? Yeah, you know, eating outside at night. It's not right, is it's it? It's not normal. It's not British. Mind you, you're not British. <laughs> All right, well, hold on. Let me do some banter at you. Banter decanter. Why was you dressed up like um, I, a member of Kiss today? I have to make an effort when you go out, right? You I was actually making too much an effort and everyone was like, oh. You look like Noel Fielding. That's a compliment. You had, I know, he's not, he's not a Christian. <laughs> you look like you had bell bottoms and bell sleeves. <laughs> it was a catsuit. <laughs> I like mean, a jumpsuit. You look like a kite. <laughs> I thought <laughs> it was nice. <laughs> you look like I could have flung a string about your waist. Anyway, if you look I like, wasn't there, the, the whole complete ensemble. I kept back some of it. What did you keep I, back? I had like a black leather harness that goes over it. Harness? Yeah. You look like Elvis. <laughs> you look like look, Vegas Elvis. I look like no feeling Elvis and Kiss. <laughs> it was glam. I mean, glam is the word, I guess we're... Yeah, but and then I put some my glasses on, little put the harness thing. You put the harness on, have you got a picture? You've got a picture of it, haven't you? You little show off. No. <laughs> got a picture with a, a dog that I met. Yeah, any good? What type of a dog? <laughs> She's looking like me as a dog. <laughs> Afghan, is it? No, she's teeny tiny. I can't, it's audio, so I can't really. But it's like, and she's all coy. What was it, Italian ground? What kind of dog was it? Had it been in a fire? No, <laughs> her name's Foxy. Foxy? Look. <laughs> she looks terrified. Let me show Laura that. Laura, look at this dog. <laughs> she always looks terrified. This is a dog Jenny made yesterday. 
You that's like Laura likes dogs like that, don't you? I love a dog that looks like that, all sort of nervous. nervous. Yeah, and nervous she does, does that with her paw. Elegant and nervous. Yeah. Yeah, that's what our cat Jericho's like. Right, she went out. You didn't. You're still not dating anyone. You've no. still not found any chisel jaws. As um, given up. Hmm? Officially given up. Good. Well, I think celibacy is probably best for everyone else. <laughs> they did look great yesterday, Thanks. if I may say that as a co-worker. Play the jingle if you want. Not too loud. This cat's giving birth in here. Now time for comments. Comments now. This one's from, from Jollacy. This is the wisdom from the angel. What's she commenting on? David Bocelli. Good episode with David Bocelli. Did you listen to it again? Did you include the bit where my legs were flailing <laughs> no. open? Like, after you cut that out? I cut it out. It was too... Disgusting. And boring to listen to. Oh, thanks, Jen. Because <laughs> you can't see it. This is the wisdom of the new, the ancients new, and we're getting back to it only now, says Jodhisattva. Full circle. Hey, full circle. That's what I say in our football podcast. If you're not listening you to our football podcast. You know that guy has two full circles tattooed on his wrist? Oh, my God. Full circle, full circle. And what's this moon called? The Lionsgate moon. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Do you, Jen? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> anyway, you should listen to full circle, my thing. Full circle. I mean, football is nice. Oh, yeah. Sorry, it's not called that. It's called Football is Nice. It's a podcast. It's available everywhere. It's free, unlike this podcast, which is a subscription model. But it's still good. I think it's a very high-quality product. Are you enjoying Football is Nice? Yeah. Just finished editing the first one. Yeah. Is there too many stories about me talking about, like, you know, embarrassment? <laughs> from both of you the entire time. That was the theme. Right. Because you've got tweets in from embarrassment about embarrassing things that happen. So that's all it was, really. Yeah, it wasn't too embarrassing, was it, Jen? No. No more than usual. No, Gareth's stories were worse. What, 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 yeah, were they? Yeah, especially the urinal one. That was good when he said that. That might be a funny bit when he said he was sounded like he was sat down at a urinal <laughs> talking to his own <laughs> reproductive organ. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to promote the football element of the show. <laughs> doesn't does it, really. Deep cover, Trisha. Post-traumatic growth, I like this. That's a good phrase. That's what David said. Did he? Yeah. A BB33. I discovered TRE three years ago and it was life so What did you just that was, that was Alicia. Why is Alicia sighing like We can that? hear you sighing. Why, why are you sighing, Alicia? <laughs> you also can hear you. What, what are you sighing about? What are you sighing about? It's just, just happiness. Sighing? <laughs> didn't sound like happiness. It sounds like exasperation. <laughs> Um, okay, so right, <laughs> hold a minute. Alabibi, Abibi, thirty-three discovered trauma release therapy after a severe brush with trauma. Excellent work, at Russell Brand, to present it for to a wide audience. Maybe we should do a video about it. Should we put it on YouTube? Or something? A side channel video. Maybe if you're not subscribed to the side to channel shake. awakening, you should shake it off, baby. Shake it off. I think Taylor Swift says that. Doesn't yeah, she does. Shake it off like Taylor, Taylor Swift does. All right, we've done comments now. And Ian McGilchrist, this is a really good podcast. We're putting it out a bit earlier than he would have liked, isn't it? Because yeah. I, I really liked it and they want to promote their book. So we're going to have to really help them heavily promote their book yeah. called uh, The Matter With Things. Get pre-order it now. There's a link in the description. Now, um, listen to shout-outs and Apple Podcast reviews. Is there a... Listen to shout-outs! <laughs> getting better, Jen, I suppose. Well, there's never what? an appropriate moment. Is that your catchphrase? <laughs> That's what should be on your gas will be on your tombstone. There's never an appropriate moment. Jenny May Finn. Thank God it's over. That's why I don't save too much. 
It's for the best. never an appropriate moment. <laughs> I know, Jim, when you do talk, I think. And then my voice is all deep because I was talking so much. You've talked, you see, you must have mentioned who are you talking to? <laughs> the people who are bed. Did you sleep here? Where did you sleep? I didn't sleep here. Where did you sleep? I slept in Twickenham. <laughs> who with? <laughs> Not with anyone. Was you on a camp bed? No, I was in a nice bed. Who's in there with you? No one. <laughs> so you're on your own in a nice bed in yeah. Twickers. Mm. You've got your own room? <laughs> What's wrong with that woman? <laughs> now, what is it, Alicia? There's a dog I think Carly pooed her pants. Yeah, there's too many animals in here. There's animals giving birth, they're farting. It's like an ark, isn't it? I mean, it's a good job that I am actually a prophet no. here to save the wait for it. Set up a cult, save the world. Mm. The cult's going well, Jen. We're do, you no. know we're going to do a live event in the field. No. Alicia's organising it now. I'm not in that department. Yes, yeah. I'm in the audio department. <laughs> the audio's integral to it. No. It is, Jen. No. Stop waving the pen at me. I you're am. not doing, you're not a magician. <laughs> I am waving it, Jen. <laughs> or a hypnotist. You're trying to do something, it's not working. How do you know you don't know what the I'm desired effect the... is? <laughs> what is that, going to leave? Yeah. <laughs> well, still here, though, isn't you, Jen? <laughs> As the pen said. Professional. <laughs> <laughs> so the professional is me, Jen, me and the Why pen. Are you, are you trying to tap into the lion's gate or something? <laughs> the lion's gate's coming through me powerful. The Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. Softy567 says, I listen to this podcast every day when I walk home from school. Well done, mate. Is it appropriate? How old is you? How old are you, Softy? You could go up to like 18, can't you? At school, yeah. Right. But it's not like a six-year-old, probably. It's probably not a six-year-old. I listen to this every day when I walk <laughs> from school. Then I go home, I stick on CBBS, and it's a real increase. In They'd it. have to have a debit card. They've got a debit. Unless their mum's getting it, them, or their dad, or have a carer. A <laughs> kindly benefactor. <laughs> I love it. It's so interesting, the way it makes you think about things from a different perspective. It's so good. Thank you so much, Softy567. Stay in school, kids. Now, remember to listen to Above the Noise, my meditation podcast, where, you know, there's a, I've put a couple of meditations on the Awakening channel. With cats giving birth, literally, in it. She jumps up on the table. You know, it's pretty good, though. It's all good stuff. And, uh, yeah, listen to Above Noise. You've got it. If you're listening to this on Luminary, then also you've got it. Then Alicia makes enough noise, doesn't she, when she types. It's like someone typing on ice with a chisel. <laughs> um, all right, and remember, there's some dates available for my tour, 33. Go to russellrand.com forward slash live dates if you're around the south of the UK or if you're in the north and you don't mind travelling or the west or the east, you know. And if you're not signed up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com, then you should get signed up to it. And remember to watch my stuff on both my YouTube channels. Get over there and watch that. And if you're a football fan or a fan of people talking about embarrassing stories, you're going to love that stuff. But for now, let's listen to Ian McGillchrist. Um it's a really, Ian's amazing. It's one of my favourite ever podcasts, probably one of the longest ones, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Oh, another baby's coming. Oh, another baby's coming. All right, let's listen to Ian McGill, Chris. He's a fantastic guest. You're going to love this. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Uh, thanks for coming on Under the Skin, Ian McGillchrist. It's lovely to speak with you. Thank you very much for having me on. I suppose the areas that I'm most keen to understand, because 
I suppose all of us are trying, whether uh, deliberately and diligently or just experientially, to understand our reality that we may better live. And some of the things I've heard you talk about and some of the things I've read suggest that our relationship with reality is somewhat fluid, possibly it's something we can't ever really truly know. And I suppose over the course of our conversation, I would love to consider and discuss some of the some of the spiritual and political implications uh, that are suggested by our inability to truly understand uh, an objective reality. And I also, like, I didn't get to the bit where you broke down subjective and objective when you were talking to Jordan Peterson. I was kind of keen to understand that as well. But uh, as your your new book, The Matter uh, uh, with Things, it'd be good to, a good place to start, as any most people, I'm sure, understand broadly the areas that you work in. But where do you go um, in a sort of a precede manner in, in this book? It's, it's it's um it's quite a challenge doing an elevator um pitch on this one it's a couple of volumes long and each is 800 pages but it's really it i've gone on from the master and his emissary which now is 10 years old and uh i'm really trying to answer the question who were we what is the world and what is our relationship with it and I would very much qualify what you said in the introduction there, because while it's certainly true that there isn't one single absolute truth that anybody can reach, it's nonetheless very importantly true uh, that some things are simply truer than others. If they weren't, we wouldn't be able to say anything or have any reason for doing anything. We have to have truth. And it's very real. There's a tendency in postmodernism to sort of suggest that, you know, it's all made up. And I want to distance myself both from that and from the idea that it's just a simple objective truth out there that we must get hold of. I think we do get hold of truth, but we need to re-envision what we mean by truth, not just something out there separate from us, but something that we go to create. And that fact that we go to create, it doesn't make it less true makes it more true those of us that have quite turbulent inner lives and you know speak just for myself my experience of reality alters pretty radically almost on an hourly basis over the course of a day i feel like sort of despair and great joy and uh, doubts about like even the most um casual you know acquaintanceships you know that they, they can bring about in me a kind of um a sense of m mobility how mm -hmm. do we like there's because there's so much complexity in your work it seems to me and uh, as we um just experienced by you know you did give a kind of an elevator pitch it's sort of it's not an easy thing <laughs> to summarize within your work how do you um it, like you know given the example that i've uh, just uh, my example of like my mm. own inability to mm. cope with reality and how the vicissitudes of an ordinary day how do yes. does your work apply there you know given that okay we are saying that there is a truth that we're not going to sort of plunge headfirst into relativism or nihilism what how how mm. does your how does your work help you or me deal with reality 
Well, I think the the example you gave of how when nothing that you can point to has objectively changed, but nonetheless, the way you see the world has changed. It's a very nice um, down to earth example of how what is real to us is variable. And each of these ways of looking at things has some aspect of that reality. So the way in which we approach the world, the way in which we attend to the world is a really important concept. And I'm sure if you've been looking at a few of my talks, you'll find that I almost always come down to this question of attention. How you attend to something changes what you find there. And it also changes you. So the same perfectly real set of circumstances has different aspects. And depending on how you attend to it, you find something different there. I sometimes give the example of a mountain behind my house, which is a particularly striking looking piece of the landscape. And its name in Norse means the sloping rock. And that means that 2000 or well, probably less than that, actually a thousand years ago when the Norsemen came down here, they used the outline of the mountain, which is a sloping one, as a landmark that warned them that they were about to enter a bay where there were many shipwrecks. <laughs> so to them, it was a very important sort of warning and, a, and a, a safety sign. But we also know that long before that, there were pits living in brochs around the base of it. And for them, this was the home of the gods, and it also provided shelter from the storms. And then in the 18th century, people came up here and started painting and drawing it. And then in the 19th century, geologists came and appreciated the fact that it's made of columnar basalt. Um, if I asked a physicist what it's made of, he'd say, well, 99.99% of it is just space. And what the rest of it is, we don't know. All these descriptions of the mountain are perfectly real. I mean, they're not fantasies, they're not made up, and none of them is wrong. It's just that depending on the kind of attention and the priorities you have, you find the world full of a certain kind of stuff. And if you change the way you attend, you find it's completely different. So what I'm hoping to do in this book is to lead people, if you like, on a journey where we go somewhere and we look at the landscape from different angles. And I hope to convey to people something that will make them see the world differently from, from then on. Perhaps never see it the old way again. I, I, one of the things I never anticipated about the master and his emissary was that people would write me emails saying, you know, since I've read your book, my whole life has changed, which is a very nice thing to get once, but to get it frequently is, is remarkable. And I suppose what it shows is that when I gave up doctoring in order to write, it wasn't true, as I thought, that I was going to stop doing what I liked to do, which was to help people. I could do that through my writing. So maybe that is a possibility. When you were talking about the man behind your house there, Ian, I just thought about um, the brilliant writer and former guest on this show, Robert McFarlane, who went writing oh, yes. about geology, writes about deep time and like that the, the yes. geological movements could be understood as waves he's sort of like the in mm. he, in his book underland he writes about sort of looking up at some rock and for a moment flinching as if it was falling and realizing that it is falling but just across <laughs> millennia and uh, yes. 
across the you know i think about this idea of sort of scale and how it relates to perception scale mm. of course in time terms of size sort of spatial scale but also temporal scale and the sort of speed at which we Absolutely. move through reality and how that alters our perception do you see in some sort of spiritual um disciplines or eastern mysticism uh that the, the ideas of transcendence could be an attempt to reach out to a different strata of uh ulterior and um ever-present reality in order to achieve a kind of even momentary salvation from the sort of challenges of living entirely within your own solipsistic relationship with time that's a a really good question. I, I almost feel like you must have read my book, and I know you haven't, the new one. Um, because there are a number of things to say about that. I mean, the first thing I'd like to pick up is the idea of motion in time and space, because it's very, very important. Um, I'm a great devotee of a 6th century BC Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, and what he's famous for saying is everything flows. And all my life, I've thought about that. And I think a lot of people think it just means everything changes, which is, yeah, true up to a point. But much more importantly, that everything flows, because you can have change where one thing just disappears and another thing suddenly comes into existence. But that's not what he was getting at. He was saying that everything is always, always in a process of flow. And so actually in the book I say about the mountain behind the house, you know, animals move fast, plants move rather slowly, mountains move very, very, very slowly. But if you had a time-lapse camera, you could see that mountain coming towards my house. And if you went on for longer than we'll probably be here to see it, you'd see it crash over the house. So scale matters hugely. And it matters very much in what I'm really very keen to do is to combat the reductionist idea, which is very much in opposition to the world picture you were mentioning of spirituality, that really it's all mechanical. And <laughs> I think this is a problem of scale. If you, if you have a very, very complex picture with lots and lots of things influencing one another, so complex that you can't possibly really work it out, even a computer couldn't do it all. And what goes on in a single cell is that complex. But if you take a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of it, you can see a little, little section where there's a straight line and you can see, oh, that leads to that. And you can intervene there. So you think, oh, it's like, it's like a machine, but it isn't like a machine in, in about, 10 different ways, but which I, I go into in, in the book. So I think that's, that's all quite relevant. The, the scale you look at something changes it. For example, at the most basic level, we say there are only, you know, I don't know, eight or nine kinds of particles, and that's everything. But as you come up, you start to see there's a myriad complex things, you know, that, that, that have quite different new qualities that are not there in the little nine particles. But if you carry on to a much, much higher scale, then you see that the cosmos looks, again, rather like those atoms. <laughs> and so that's another instance of how scale matters. I argue in the book that time, and we might want to talk a bit about this, because it's very much a matter in Oriental philosophy, as opposed to Western philosophy, is that a lot of people in the Western tradition 
um, particularly in religious traditions, have battened onto an idea that time is an illusion, that really, if we could see it as it is, whatever that means, um, we'd find that time was just a deception. There was no time. But in fact, all the really important traditions that I love, like Zen and Taoism and all these things, um, and indeed one of the, sorry, finish that sentence, show that in fact they espouse the idea that everything flows eternally. Now, if it does, there has to be time. Nothing can flow, nothing can move, nothing can, it's, you just collapse if there's no time. Everything is just a single nothing. And one 12th century Japanese poet says, you know, even God can't exist outside of time. So I, one of my chapters is on time and another on space and another on motion. But perhaps I'll just say one final thing on this riff, <laughs> because you, it was, you're very rich the way you kind of put these things out there, is that what I aim to do in this book is to take neurology, obviously, physics and philosophy and show that from their very different starting points on the sort of if you imagine on the outside of a sphere as you go deeper and deeper in they reach the same core they reach the same reality that's number one very nice thing number two is that the reality that they disclose is absolutely in keeping with the reality described by most of the the mystics in the world who've done what is necessary to be in a position to know. Um, so there is a coming together of these things, which is extremely pleasing, each enriching the other. What correlatives are there between these three disciplines and how they coalesce centripetally and the mystical traditions that you cite? What is it to do with uh, oneness, unity? I love what you said about time and that thing about, the, you know, the, mm. that uh, the 12th century poet, even God is not outside of time. I obviously can't fully appreciate it as a dimension because of my animalistic appreciation of time being little more than you know, entropy and biography and patterns of birth and death and seasonal cycles. But sometimes when you talk about the vastness, the uh, fractal limitless of the subparticular and the ultra cosmic, I feel the sort of uh, tendrils of the uncanny brush past like coral. <laughs> Mm. And it uh, evokes something in me that suggests from what little I appreciate of your work that somewhere in this right-brained understanding as opposed to the more limited and, and liminal uh, left-brained understanding, and it must be heartbreaking to hear someone mangle your work in such a fashion for you over there. Um, I feel that sometimes I feel it. I feel the calling of it. And I wonder if this is something that you are referring to and how we might further describe this indescribable phenomena um, with the sort of, the sort of triangulation of those three disciplines. Well, quite on the contrary, by the way, I don't find you mangling. What I love is that you 
you ask very good questions. You're, I mean, you're a very experienced interviewer, so I'm not surprised. But um, yes, perhaps I could just take a little time to unpack that thing about the right and left hemisphere difference without going into masses of detail. Effectively, because the left hemisphere pays very narrow beam attention to a detail that has taken its interest. Um, and because the right hemisphere, meanwhile, is sustaining the whole picture, is vigilant and open. You get two kinds of pictures of the world from the very narrow beam one that is flitting from this detail to that detail to the other. You get a vision of the world in which what it finds are a lot of disconnected fragments, atomistic, decontextualized, um, that may be put into categories in an attempt to understand them, or perhaps we try and put them together to make meaning out of them. They're rather abstract, and they're really more or less like symbols of real experience. They're, they're kind of very pale imitations, if I may put it that way, of what real, what you call animalistic, embodied experience is, which is the great thing we have while we're alive, is we have this rich way of sort of understanding reality through not just a mental scheme but through our whole embodied existence emotions intellect and spirit together with the body so you get that picture in the left hemisphere and in the, the right hemisphere you get a completely different picture which is that nothing ultimately can be disconnected from anything everything is connected which doesn't mean to say that it all collapses into one big mush <laughs> it's much more connected to the things immediately in the context of it. So, you know, we're connected with one another because we're talking right now, and this room is very connected to me, but further out and beyond, everything connects. And what's more, all those things are constantly changing. They can't be pinned down for certain because they just can't be fixed and made. If they were dead, if you could stick a pin in it, you know, as the left hemisphere would like, it takes a sort of snapshot. There, I've got it. And um, the right hemisphere says, no, sorry, it's already changed. So the right hemisphere has a, a vision of the world in which things get to be known constantly. They're coming into being and they're coming into being known. Um, they're not fixed and dead certain aspects of the world like the, light, the left hemisphere makes them like they're just counters in the game of knowledge. And the right hemisphere sees that everything everything is actually unique. I mean, it's a good shorthand to say, you know, a table is a table, but actually every table is different. Every human being is different. And so there is nothing uh, in which we are actually completely equal to one another. We're all quite different, which is great. At the same time, we have commonalities, you know, we're all human beings, which is another good thing. So it's finding a way between a picture of the world, which is rich with meaning, it understands implicit meaning. All those things that are implicit are understood by the right hemisphere. If it's not explicit, the left hemisphere tends not to get it. So it doesn't get jokes, really. It doesn't get poems, really. It doesn't get music, really. The right hemisphere is much better at all that stuff that gives richness and meaning to life. So you've got two distinct visions of the world there. But what I try to get away from is the idea that the right hemisphere is 
the only good one and that somehow we ought to get rid of the left hemisphere because the left hemisphere tells us something. It tells us something quite important, which needs to be combined with what the right hemisphere tells us, but not in an equal way because the right hemisphere sees more. In my em master and his emissary, the title of the uh, 2009 book, um, the right hemisphere is the master and must be the master of the left. The left hemisphere, though, wants to be the master. It wants to dethrone the master. And it thinks it knows more. And that is simply because it knows less. I mean, the less it knows, the more it thinks it knows everything. The right hemisphere doesn't think it knows everything. It's aware of the need for what the left hemisphere tells it. In the, in the story of the master and his emissary, the master appoints his emissary. So, evolutionary the left the right hemisphere has said to the left hemisphere you go and do this kind of work for us it'll help very much create a map of things it will be very good for strategic things being able to grab stuff grab food grab territory get one over on other people and meanwhile the right hemisphere has been holding the, the thing together and saying this is the world you know understand it now so it helps us understand and the left hemisphere helps us manipulate in a different way just like a map doesn't contain all the meaning that's in the world that is mapped so i am reaching somewhere i think what i think we need is the divisional tendency of the left hemisphere and the unifying tendency of the right hemisphere to be unified in other words we need something that differentiates and something that brings back to a whole but we need both of them to be together whole. So we don't want, um, you know, an either or, which is what the left hemisphere goes for. And we don't need only a both and as the right hemisphere goes for. We need both hmm. an either or and a both and. Cool. I thought of some things. Yes. These are them. I thought about Moses and yes. Aaron in the Old Testament, like that the prophet yes. necessarily has to be diaphanous and porous to receive the, to, to access the unknowable where, and there needs to be a pragmatist. I thought of the sort of in a sort of Joseph Campbell type way, the sort of common pairing of the warrior and the priest, you know, that, that, that we need a shaman, but we need you yes. know, Arjuna for Krishna say. I, I I thought about the necessity and the sort of um, speaking somewhat literally that you know this necessity for subjugation that in the, the, the in the name of Islam that if you if the left brain is not subjugated if the me mechanistic materialistic mentality takes over exactly false idols will rise. I thought of the necessity for a kind of a sort of a sort of a porousness. Uh, between these two spaces and um and and in young integrity and integration like the idea of like integration with the shadow uh, like for completion mm. in the in in jung's ideas that like that with the unconscious material needs to be incorporated to be whole and i heard in what you were saying mm. from your own area of expertise um the sort of um the movements uh, of other disciplines. I could hear the tunes mm. of uh, other descriptions of, uh, according to what you said earlier, a kind of a, a potentially mm. a sort of a, a common, a common, a common reality. So, like, it, I, I suppose 
what you're saying is that that, that in, in, in spite of potentially limitless difference and limitless variation and our perhaps our um mm -hmm. uh, overly assertive inclination to for taxonomy and the associated prejudices that that might create or at least opposition that that could create that there is a, a an obvious requirement for you know plainly evolved from our need to survive for the sort of mechanistic interpretation of reality but that possibly when people say you know patriarchy and stuff what they perhaps possibly what could be meant is that that that, that this the dominion the biases of this dominion have excluded the mystery and I, like you know i wouldn't approach it from a gender perspective anyway because that's just i guess it's not my experience but like but i would approach it from a kind of um that we have desacralized the world we've mm. like that the mm. that when when we revere nature and acknowledge that there's something mm. sort of mm. unknowable that we can somehow that we are haunted by something in nature that we can never mm fully own as you said cannot fully be pinned down that it, it creates reverence and that we have a numinous mm. experience mm. of reality as opposed to a sort of a mechanistic resource base this is here for us to use mm. <laughs> smash that mountain mm. down we could use that you know like yes yes no i gosh i i love that as i keep thinking how did you secretly read my new book <laughs> um but, you know, this is taking the argument into just where I go with it, which is that the problem is that we have this extremely arrogant idea that we understand things according to a very simple model, which is not really very different from that of a pop-up toaster or the bike in the garage. You take it apart, you can put it in this way, it does stuff. And, you know, we're getting to learn how it all works. So, you know, the world is just a mechanism it's full of stuff for us to use if we're clever. And we are just these, you know, playthings of chance, the robots made by genes that clunk about and then disappear. Um, I don't think this has even a vestige of truth in it. There's nothing in science and nothing in reason that compels us to take this point of view. And I look at all of this from the standpoint of science and reason, as well as intuition and imagination, which I think are needed together. And one of the things I say is that it's not that, I don't think people understand intuition and imagination, and I don't think they understand science or reason actually. Because when you come to look at the real greatness of science, and it is a fantastic imaginative adventure, when you read the stories of the great scientists, the great mathematicians, how they reached their discoveries, they almost never did anything like what we were taught at school was the scientific procedure. Their things came to them um, in very much the way that actually great works of art come to great artists. It doesn't mean to say that you don't have to do a lot of spade work, but then as an artist, you have to do a lot of spade work. You have to learn, you know, your medium, or at least in the past, you had to learn a medium. and and. So the science that is very left hemisphere like, which is we follow these procedures, a robot could do it better than we can. In fact, computers will do it better in the future. 
And then there's science, which is actually what is practiced by the truly great scientists, which is using your imagination to see the shapes and forms that make sense of this. And this is how the leaps in science are made. Equally, reason. You know, reason has been terribly downplayed in, in the recent history. In, instead, something that I have to call rationality has been put in its place. Rationality is very limited. It's the following of rules. It is indeed what algorithms in a computer can do. But in the past, you know, in great people like Erasmus and, you know, wise people of the last 500 years or much longer than that, have thought, and certainly Plato and Aristotle thought, that reason was something that required experience in which you brought the wisdom and intuition that comes from having lived and observed carefully with that capacity to rationalize. So it wasn't just the one. So again, I think there's right hemisphere reason, which is nearer to a kind of reasonableness than it is to um, pure you know, abstract logic. And then the intuition and imagination, again, in imagination, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, that's surely not going to help us get to the truth. I mean, that's taking us away from the truth. But no, absolutely not. Imagination is not fantasy. I mean, even fantasy can help you contact some aspects of truth. But imagination is not what takes you away from reality. It is, in fact, your only chance of understanding reality. Unless you use your imagination to enter in to what you're seeing and finding. You won't experience it, you won't know it. And this is imagination as understood by Blake, imagination as understood by Wordsworth, which they opposed to fantasy. So again, there's sort of a left hemisphere understanding of imagination that it's just lies. And a right hemisphere understanding of imagination is it's our only path <laughs> to getting truth. Not the only one in the sense that we don't use the other things, but we must use imagination with our reason, with our scientific powers and with intuition. You know, intuition has been um, given a rather bad rap recently because there are lots of clever psychologists who can do little tests which are carefully designed in which your natural intuition, which would be right 99% of the time, and therefore you would be stupid not to use it, just happens on this occasion not to be right. Okay, very clever, collect a Nobel Prize. But I can show you optical illusions, which are so bizarre that you would say it can't be true, but it really is. And when you've seen that, you don't go, oh, well, that does it. I'm not going to look at things again. I mean, I'm going to close my eyes. No, you carry on looking, but you're just aware that very occasionally, very occasionally, you need to just temper it with other stuff. So one of the things I argue, is that the right hemisphere sees more of the world in all kinds of understands it more that we need to bring together reason and science with intuition and imagination not just saying one of them is the only one and we need to take that and look at the building blocks of the universe so that's where i go those are the first two parts and then in part three i go okay so what do we find here let's have a look at time let's have a look at space let's have a look at motion um, let's have a look at the, you're, you're interested in Jung, the opposition that comes together, what he called the, um, uh, oh God, uh, coincidentia oppositorum, the coming together of opposites, which I think is a very profound insight. 
and you were hinting at it with the talk of Jung and the dark side, because one of the weird things about our world is that we think in linear terms, whereas all the fruitful ways of thinking are in what I would call a spiral, not just a circle, because that suggests you just come back to the spot you started from. You come back at the next turn of the spiral, knowing more, and you can still see where you've been as you go around and get higher and higher. And there is a, a, a painting by Blake of um, uh, the staircase uh, to heaven, which is in this form of Jacob's ladder, which is normally thought of as a ladder. But here it's a kind of spiral, which I love because I think that's how we get to truth. We, we circle around things. But um, any, in any case, in the world that we're in, we don't think with those visual images. We think of straight lines. There's that. I need it, I go and get it, which is the left hemisphere just sees, okay, I grab it. It's the bit that controls your right hand that goes, yep, got it, I'll have another one of those. Um, whereas the right hemisphere is seeing that actually, if you push too far one way, you find the other thing coming back and biting you. And as a psychiatrist, one of the things I had to do was to say to people, don't deny the dark aspect of this, because if you do, it will become very powerful. But by recognizing it and accepting it, not accepting it in the sense of, I don't want to change or be a better person, but accepting that that's part of the reality, you can actually then relieve that dark side of its power. It doesn't control you anymore because you've, as it were, taken it under your wing and said, okay, it's part of the bigger picture. And in this, I see, the ability of goodness and love to embrace their opposites, whereas the opposites, uh, evil and hatred, can't embrace their opposites. That's a beautiful um, testimony or um, like a calling for for love and compassion that I'd not considered. That yeah, that I, I've thought before that you can't ultimately vanquish love with hate in the end i'm very interested yeah. to what you said in what you said about sort of darkness and sort of i suppose by proxy your sort of experiences as a practicing um therapist i'm i'm, I'm interested in that I, i'm interested in where this kind of i'm reading that book about blake at the moment it's a kind of popular book about blake at the moment i think he's coming on the guy and like um sort of there's a lot of um kind of modern analysis of what might be going on with william blake and his mental okay. illness and like that's like that he sort of blake describes this two-fold world and this four-fold world like he's seeing reality simultaneously experiencing a thistle as an old man but recognizing that he appreciates that it is a thistle but simultaneously there's this sort of secondary you know imaginary perhaps in the terms that you have described it um reality i like what you said too about the nature of genius that sudden intersection of a of a sort of a separate parallel distinct or discrete kind of intelligence that through inspiration meets with uh you know that is somehow activated lots of um queries really some of them are some of them are about the nature of god and the like that like because i can see a kind of an atheistic perspective that might be applied to like your work in this area that you're operating in in that oh it's precisely this um 
relationship between the left and right brain that sort of creates this mystery, that creates this idea of an other, uh, of, a, of a, a sort of a supreme being, that we're aware of this supreme being, you know, like and I, I can see how the, the sort of your work could um, could suggest that. Um, I believe in God and myself for what it's worth. And, um, and what I suppose, I, I suppose what, what interests me most of all, Ian, is the possibility that we might frame our reality in different ways to bring about different outcomes. Because it seems, you know, increasingly clear over the course of our conversation that, that many of the challenges that we are facing are as a result of decisions that have been made and how those decisions have been reached, that we are living in a, a fundamentalist uh, culture that denies its own fundamentalism and frames it simply as natural and ordinary and the o only reality that there is that denies the potential for separate realities in fact the way that conversation plays out is whenever i have the conversation with people that i sort of don't agree with they say well what other what do you want then communism we've seen how that plays out there's no 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 <laughs> there's there's not only sort of opera and punk there's hip-hop and drill and ska <laughs> and there's so many ways of experiencing reality there's so many ways of experiencing reality and that sort of we foreclose on those possibilities perhaps because to people in significant positions of power it's suitable that reality remains like this that we regard ourselves as atomized individuals that we see the world as highly mechanistic that we if we you're here to fulfill yourself to meet your ultimately sort of deviations from and expressions of primal drives and all else is conjecture if it can't be measured if it can't be weighed it isn't there. And because I suppose of the way that sort of the 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 fall, I suppose, is sort of like the the fall of religious culture or the sort of the way that the divine divinity has become sort of owned and mobilized and I kind of I don't know, the clumsiness of that. The reintroduction of the sacredness into sort of a post-secular, late rational culture and I, I enjoyed your distinction between reason and rationale the kind of reason feels like it has that you know i in that i think again in mcfarland's book he talks about like a, a language where they use that the, their word for bay is a verb you know that it is baying you know like it's it's alive it's not dead it's not fixed it's not finished it's rivering it's it's yeah. rustling it's like it's these things are happening now yes. it's an event it's an event um and I, so I suppose that much of your work is about introducing these ideas in, in, in a via philosophy into an arena where they might be used to sort of critique and suggest alternatives to, um, you know, sort of like, you know, this neoliberalistic kind of culture or this sort of retrospect, retroactive ethno-nationalism and this oddly puritanical leftism and like that, all of these ideas that seem in a way, to be variations on left-brained ideas, not least because of their certainty and the preclusion of potential change, coalescence, necessity for integration, and that Jungian term that I've already forgotten. And I wonder if you talk more about that. Oh, well, gosh, so many things there. Um, well, first I'd like to say... Um, how lovely I thought it was that you talked about wonder. Um, it's not a trivial matter and it doesn't 
equate with ignorance. In fact, the more ignorant people are, the less room they have for wonder because in their ignorance, they think they can know everything potentially, but they can't. And I think that the religious disposition is one that brings together awe, um, compassion, and a degree of humility. And humility is misunderstood in our culture and is not very popular in our culture, actually. Everybody's got to be powerful. Everybody's got to be one over everybody else. Everybody's got to be um, invulnerable and, and, and aggressive and so on. But actually, the whole business of not trying to be the all-powerful one, of accepting that we don't know, and finding that that actually opens our eyes, as you know from, I, I know you're very interested in Oriental philosophy, and I think this is, when I say these things about all compassion and humility, they're not limited to any one religion. I think they characterize all the great religions, or, or not even religions in some cases, spiritual traditions. So I like that very much. And one of the things I want to do is, in my new book, is to say, come with me, because you've been taught some things that have closed up your world. You're living in a man-made prison you're living in a very diminished world compared with the one you could live in and that often humanity has lived in and quite possibly many uh, living beings live in that we don't know enough about. Um, so st stop saying that, you know, all these beautiful, the beauty in the world, the goodness in the world, along with the badness and the ugliness, because there was a coincidence of opposites. You can't have the one without the other. But I could say more about how those relate, because in, in another sense, I believe that once again, the positive ones actually are able to cope with and even turn the other thing into something um, uh, actively better than it intrinsically seems to be. But in any case, um, that we're not just painting these things on the walls of our cell. But they are real out there. And that's what our brains have a capacity to put us in touch with. If we don't keep telling ourselves it can't be real. And you see, this is the thing. People like Dawkins say that if we didn't indoctrinate children into ideas of a religious nature, they would never come up with these things. This is utterly unscientific studies in, of all all kinds of things of children's language and thought all over the world, the way religions thrive under atheistic um, regimes as they did in Russia for 70 years or more. Um, it, it just doesn't add up at all. We have a faculty that contacts something very rich. And as long as we respect it, we can use it. If you don't use it, it will wither and practically die away. So you have to be aware of it. You know, when Aboriginal people say they can see things and they can hear things that we can't, who are we to say that they can't? You know, who are we to say overactive imaginations? No, ours are underactive intelligence and imagination and intuition. So, um, yeah, what I wanted to show that is relevant, I think, to what you're saying is that there is, a, there is a very left hemisphere stream in philosophy, which is generally speaking, the most reductionist form of American, Anglo-American 
analytic philosophy. But there is a whole other kind of philosophy and always has been. And it's thrived in the last hundred years in Europe, which looks at the world in a much more realistic way, not just at the map, but actually at experience. And what we are now finding is that although there's still left some dinosaur biologists like Dawkins and people who just see the natural world as a machine, the way people started to think in the mid-Victorian era, you know, it's a hydraulic view of nature as a sort of machine that with pumps and things. Um, modern physics, you know, they, they dropped this machine idea a hundred years ago. And it's a paradox that in the science of the inanimate physics, they find only an animate universe in which consciousness simply cannot be taken out of the equation at any point. And in the so-called life sciences, we're presented with a vision of an inanimate world in which everything is mechanism. This is hilarious. I mean, if it weren't so grievous, because it's so ridiculous, and yet it's driving us to scorn and not appreciate and mistreat the natural world and people from other cultures that are still in touch with nature more than, I mean, unfortunately, they're all being westernized as fast as we can speak. But, you know, there are indigenous peoples all over the world who, if we can just stop destroying their way of life, we could learn from, you know? So I think, yeah, it's, it's a very powerful thing that we, we need to see what's being done to us, by us, by a, by a kind of blinded, um, a blinded brain that is no longer picking up, which is, which is simply ignorant of and says it can't be to everything that would lift us out of this. Yes, I, I when you said like the, the sort of the scientific metaphors that emerge from the Victorian era mirror the novelty and ingenuity of their 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 vanguard it's sort of it, that is that is clear to me and um it, of course the ongoing dominion requires that those metaphors or narratives are not overthrown and mm. it's it's it seems challenging to and somehow sometimes ersatz, I suppose, to think of how we may reinvigorate the, you know, though it could, of course, happen in a generation. Of course, it could happen in a generation, 100 years, and obviously here, etc. Like, but that sometimes I, you know, I participate somewhat in like new age stuff, you know, but uh, sometimes it... Um, I have to suppose I have to tread gently. Sometimes it offends me, <laughs> like it offends me. Um, I suppose, and I'm not again, like you know, not in the same way. I would, I, I'm not offended by folk. Bear, don't do that. Jesus Christ, my dog just attacked the the, the other dog. Um, bear, you can't do that, mate. I think mental. Bear, lay down, lay down. I'll have to assert a little bit of dominance here. Excuse me. 
Lay down, Ben. <laughs> Very awesome. good. Here, you should you. do. Thank Boundaries you. and authority are important. They are necessary. <laughs> Unfortunately, my cats don't respect that fact. <laughs> <We> <laughs> They'll be joining in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> we have cats. We uh, The beetle, yes. our most recent, well, she's no longer our most recent cat because she begat six more cats. and like a, Oh, wow. Yeah, they're glorious. The... They're 12 weeks old and already she's pregnant again. And at some point, were it not for our ability to host <laughs> these creatures, it could be considered irresponsible. But now... Now it, it must now be curtailed. It's, it's gone on. I think there's a, there's a nice story there. The cat that begat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Doctor Seuss would approve <laughs> of, of the reappropriation of his methods. Um, so we're kind of a biblical Doctor Seuss kind of area that we're going into. Um, wow. I mean, where were we before the attack, man? It was like it was. It was sort of. I think we were getting into sort of. Uh, I, well, like, you said that some. You said that some new agey things somewhat offended you. Cool. That well, is what you went. Yeah, yeah, when yeah, I talk, like I spoke yeah. to Vandana Shiva, and she's a brilliant sort of uh, scholar, uh, like, and she sort of is sort of vehemently opposed to like um, the colonization of Indian agriculture through sort of tech companies that's sort of currently happening. Mm, and mm. she talks a lot about, and she's a sort of a quantum physicist and talked about, and talks about the necessity mm. for the resacralization of life that we have lost touch with mm. the sacred. And absolutely. She's, yeah. And she's has a mm. very, I suppose being an, um, a sort of an Indian woman, her relationship with mysticism and her tradition is, um, mm. I suppose, you know, I guess you call it natural or at least it's native. Mm, and I'm um, mm. like, I don't care for like the sort of performative component that can sometimes be fact, like, you know, look at me, I've got all these chakras tattooed on myself, along with Ganesh and Christ and Durga and all manner of uh, <laughs> traditions adorn yeah. my skin. But like, um, I, I feel like that we need to uh, engage with there. There is a visceral component. I suppose yes. This is what I'm saying, is that when we do mm. into, when we do relate to the sacred, it's already gone for. It's already passed through the lens of individualism. It's already passed mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. the lens of the the host mm -hmm. culture. It's already about sort mm -hmm. of a kind of optimization. Meditate, do yoga. You'll be fitter. You'll be better at your job, yeah. rather than the yeah, sort yeah. of boundary busting yeah. magical medicine of true native culture. When like that, it's you know, that mm. we have to mm. live somehow in continual relationship with chaos. Chaos is dangerous, but it's not only dangerous, and it's but it, and it's the only thing that can mm. change order. Mm. You have to allow agents of chaos to operate within your culture in order to achieve progression. Particularly, you know, yes, of course, you need tradition. Yes, of course, you need the old ruts. Mm. But in order to continually uh, vivify mm. and libidinize this kind of what I say is a kind of a we live in a kind of ghost town. We still. Live live in those Victorian models, those Victorian ideas, so truncating exploration into the, like the, the territory that fascinates, it seems, both of us because it's not, ex it's not expedient 
for um you know for sort of it's probably Mm. reductive to say Mm. but powerful interests whether those are political or sort of transnational economic Mm. interests is i noticed that the kind of um philosophers that are fast-tracked to the top often kind of support like you know we need like an ai future and this is the way it's going to go now Mm. and like anything Mm. that's sort of mm, pagan or pantheonistic or uh, panpsychic or somehow vital and Mm. accepts Mm. the protoplasmic reality of who we are is kind of you know it's uh, like it killed in the crib yes um gosh there's a lot to say there too it's just wonderful conversation i think thank you I'm <laughs> um, enjoying the trouble it. is it's, it's being able to um not forget some of the threads of it but, <laughs> that's because i don't um, ask I actual think... questions i make long announcements <laughs> and then hope that you'll take something from it well then i'll make an announcement back i mean one of the things that i think you started off there by saying was we can't necessarily i think you what you were saying in response to my idea that of resacralizing that well how can we do that and and you then later said you know meditate it'll make you a better money broker or something you see this is absolutely the opposite of how a spiritual understanding can be achieved and so you would destroy the whole idea of revivifying a culture of wonder by saying here are the eight bullet points we must do these and practice this and do that it can't be rolled out as patrick curry says he's a um, a philosopher who's writing very well about this whole business of wonder and awe um and if you don't know his stuff i'm sure you'd like it russell but in any case he says you know there can't be a program for this. As soon as you do that, you've utterly debased and destroyed the very thing you're talking about. And of course, since religion is a matter of these things too, any kind of program for it is utterly left hemisphere and will negate the point of what you're trying to get at, which is why one of the first things one understands in mystical traditions, including the Western mystical tradition, which is not so much known about, Um, well, because of the way our culture has developed in the last few hundred years. But in East and West, the whole emphasis is on not doing and not knowing until, as it were, something presences to you. And actually, this is very good psychiatry too, because if somebody comes to you um, with anything other than the most trivial problem, it probably has quite a lot to do with the way they look at the world and the sort of core beliefs that they bring to experience. And you can't just say to them, well, that's not real, change that, you know, (laughs) uh, or this is a mistaken way to look, or anything like that. In fact, you need to say to them, well, look, what you've told me is that you, you find that time and again you do this, and then something else happens. Well, how about rather than me saying, you know, this is what you should do, you stop doing what are you doing, which you know doesn't work anyway. And be more attentive. Because you see, the thing is that when we're doing, we're not really attending. We're off away in our head, we're listening to something, we're on an exercise bike, we're thinking about lunch, we're, you know, we're, we're in a hundred different places at once, we're not really taking anything in. And it's not really an active process. The world is using you. And big money is using you. Capitalism and its advertising and its relentless fragmentation of your attention is is predatory on you. And 
what you need to re realize is that it's not by doing stuff, which at the moment you can't possibly know, because that's the problem. If you knew it, you'd be doing it. So you have to create a space in which to know. And that means a kind of active passivity. I mean, that sounds odd, but then, as I say, we can only get at reality through these um, apparent paradoxes. But it's, it's not, a, not a, by any means a nonsense. I know what that is like, and I'm sure you do too, if you meditate, that you're not going to sleep or switching off. You're actually being more present and more aware, but you're not rushing into the space and going, oh, I know it's one of those, or I think I understand. You're going, just let me experience it. As though you were in the presence of a majestic landscape or in the presence of a wonderful piece of music, you're really not doing it any favors if you're busily cataloging it. Um, you need to be, allow the thing to speak to you because I believe that although we think that most things are unidirectional, when I go somewhere, I do that to that thing and something else does something to me on another occasion, but everything is two way. So nothing alters in a relationship, obviously, without both aspects of the relationship or both ends of the relationship, whatever you like to call it being altered. So in that sense, you, you are, what I want to get at is that there aren't things for you to know. There's a way of being for you to allow yourself to enter, to allow yourself to enter. That's very important. It's this business of giving permission to things. And indeed, I think consciousness is not produced by the brain, which is a little factory turning it out in a, in a good sort of, um, corporate way uh, doesn't make any sense. I think that what the brain does is actually allow experience. It's a permitter of experience. I used to think of it as a transmitter, and I don't think there's anything too wrong with that. But in fact, I think the idea of it being a permitter is more powerful, partly because um, when things happen to the brain and sometimes when things are no longer functioning, more experience becomes available than was available when the brain was fully functioning, um, which is interesting in itself. I think it acts as a filter and a screen to stuff, which is, which is perfectly real, but becomes what it is in the encounter with me through my brain and with you through your brain, with every one of the listeners. So I see the world as a process of encounter, constant process of encounter, in which something very real is coming into being, in which what it is that is coming into being doesn't know ahead of time what that is going to be until it's had the encounter. And we, who are the other end of this encounter, don't know really what we're going to find there, or who indeed we are, until we have the encounters. The encounters not only reveal to us what we are, but they make us what we are. Cool. And so our, the attention we pay in those mm. accounts, encounters is mm. a profound moral act. If we pay mm. a kind of trivializing predatory attention to the world, we destroy something in the world and in ourselves. If we have this open more humble searching or seeking or openness, receptiveness to whatever is, mm. then we actually bring about something. We, we become through our stepping back from power, we become suddenly the agency of something good to happen. Cool. Uh, become as little children to enter their kingdom of heaven. Absolutely. That's right. And it's a very important insight. <laughs> I like and there it. are many others. In, in, 
Sorry, go on. I like that you never fell into the dualistic trap or read the uh, brain there between transmission or reception, but permitter that it sort of just suggests a sort of a, like, I know you'll appreciate this as a cat owner, like a kind of a cat flap when you have it on the setting that they can come either in or out of that reality, <laughs> of that doorway, of that portal, of that channeling shamanic space, that liminal place between worlds, the cupboard in Narnia, where things are both and neither simultaneously, the kind of metaphors that science is suggesting now that ought perhaps enter into the philosophical realm without being sort of clumsily mm. befuddled into you know just sort of positive mm. thinking stuff like you make your reality with wishes and stuff but like this like i mm. like this idea of um that the, 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 the nature of your attention is determining your reality and you can see how that again would be sort of um, reduced to you know manifest your blah 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 um but but the significance of faith or innocence of a sort of a being open to reality a kind of an acceptance i thought too while you were talking and i guess this is perhaps uh, hitting you on the level of your past as a sort of a clinical therapist that i'm you know in recovery from addiction i'm like eight and a half years clean from uh, like you know all, all substances and like the the beauty of and uh, i think genius of the 12-step program was that mm, it's mm. sort of like you know when you were saying that you can't just say to people well just stop taking drugs it's obviously it's obvious that <laughs> drugs are the problem but you do have to sort of you firstly you know came to admit that we were powerless over drugs alcohol whatever mm. and that our life had become unmanageable you get the subjects you know like you do it yourself so i accept oh yes i did these things when i was on drugs these things happened to me i can't do it anymore the second thing is it possible you know came to believe a power great than ourselves could restore us to sanity and that power greater than ourselves this could be sort of like you know like within our consciousness there are other potential realities that are yet to be realized and often it's understood in a you know in a kind of a monotheistic way and that's not necessarily a problem if it works mm. but and then the third step is made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of god as we understood god and that sort of turning over that's a mm. an ongoing challenge for most people to sort of to live in that sort of to live in that faith to meet reality there mm. to meet reality there i can feel a great deal of fear sometimes i can almost um jeopardize my well-being to the point of uh, a personal um reflected nemesis just by sort of being aware of the inevitability of the future like a kind of psychological yips of knowing something's coming something's coming i've got so many people that i love something's coming and i'm <laughs> like i just want to rub it out <laughs> <laughs> it's too much to live on that periphery and like you know you have to fall backwards into the arms of god you have to because mm. it's unbearable it's unbearable in its um the trepidation is unbearable but the beauty is sometimes unbearable too much to hold too much to hold that awe. early on when you said about the sort of uh, the inefficacy of instruction i was reminded of the famous uh, krishna murti um, epithet you know truth is a pathless land truth is a pathless land and like if you know and i don't know much about krishnamurti but what i do know is that he was sort of somehow happened upon by westerners when he was like eight and they said this guy's gonna be a prophet get him back you know let's school him up and build a magazine around him and it sort of sounds kind of quite comical and mad actually and perhaps i might be wrong so don't take all this uh, as a verite but like um like they, they, of course he sort of was an enlightened being and when he reached the age when they said right now go forth and start doing your assemblies and that he went 
well, having achieved enlightenment, I recognize that it's not something that can be conveyed or instructed or imitated and that real prophets become, you know, become the word and embody it. And in some sort of radiance, in some sort of charismatic healing are able to, yeah, to create that, to generate that spiral, to generate that spiral that it can be revisited. I was interested as well in what you said about the sort of the loss of the... I suppose the interesting thing about totemism is it is um, predicated practically on the land. You know, if it's you worship the stag or, I don't know, the owl or, you know, something that's some god of your environment, you recognize your you recognize the sort of the empiricism of the of your mystical states you recognize that this is something that's relevant to you now not there's this thing happened ages ago somewhere else we've translated it and made everyone blonde <laughs> see if it worked for you now <laughs> and um yeah i i thought that when you were doing the spiral of um that phrase, the grail will come again in Arthurian myth. The grail comes when you're an adolescent, but you're not ready then. It will come again in your middle years. And perhaps by then you'll know how to respond when the when you get the when you get the glimpse of eternity. You won't personalize it. You won't make it about the ego. And this is kind of where I live now. You know, I'm 46 years yeah. old. I'm a father. I've been illusioned and disillusioned by fame. And like, but I... I, I live with the vanities and the narcissism and the wanting of an addict with a program. I, you know, I don't use drugs. I'm I'm married. I'm monogamous. I, I you know, like an, I watch my appetites and and yet, like in some, something you were saying earlier about the left and right brain, that the the the, the diaphanous and porous nature of the right. If you're open to the right brain, it's destabilizing. My therapist, who's a brilliant man, sort of said, um, you know, when you came to therapy, the pyramid was the point you were upside down like you were all open at the top and you were balanced mm. on a point we have to invert you so that you are rooted mm. rooted mm. so that you can still receive all of this stuff that you can achieve the contact with these realms you know the permitter you can achieve permitter consciousness as opposed to you know i don't know transmit or whatever other versions of consciousness there are but yes those are some of the things well um I mean, first of all, uh, one of the real eye-openers of being a psychiatrist was seeing, it was one of the most beautiful things, was seeing people with life-destroying addictions going through the 12-step program. I myself believe that the only thing that works with addictions is some form of 12-step program. It's a very profound thing. Um, but that that's another matter. But what it emphasizes in phrases like whatever you consider to be your god or whatever you call god and um, that we don't one of the things i think puts people off is they have a very simple idea of god which they imbibed at school or, or, or i don't know where um, and the first thing is to say that the very concept of god may be a barrier to god because god is not a concept and as soon as we think we've got the concept we haven't really opened ourselves to what God is. So the first thing is, you know, the not knowing of God. Um, um, you know, and it's there in, in Christianity, just as it is in um, Oriental religions. Um, so the first thing is that I love the thing about not, not necessarily using your more conscious mind to make these changes, but allowing 
something else to speak. And Schopenhauer, who wasn't really a, a, a paid up, I think he was not a believer really in God, although he was very interested in um, the Vedic tradition, um, said there is something in you wiser than your head. And if you take head to mean the loquacious left hemisphere, which thinks it's got it sorted out, then that is certainly true. What I wanted to focus on a bit was the idea, you know, that when I say, you repeated something I'd said about how we bring the world into being, but that must not under any circumstances be taken to mean that we make it up. It is real. It is there. So are we. And it's in the between, what I call the betweenness, the coming together of two things. There is something completely over and above what's contained in those two things. And it's that that is the reality. And it doesn't make either end of this process unreal, that they bring one another into being by their joining together. Whitehead, a 20th century philosopher that I very, very much admire, um, a great mathematician apart from anything else, but also with a wonderfully rich philosophy. And he thought that whatever we mean by the divine in the cosmos is bringing the cosmos into being, but is also coming into being through the coming into being of the cosmos. So you've got these two forces that are constantly in relation, as it were, moving along the spiral and becoming more of what they are. So I have this vision of whatever we mean by the word God, and it, as I say, it can be, can be a barrier. To, I don't think one can entirely do away with it, but things like ritual and poetry and music are able to get to this place better than argument. Um, that, that whatever that is, is absolutely relational. It, 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 the relation is more real, actually, than anything else, because it's out of that relation that things come. And that, of course, comes back to the Christian belief that God is love. Love is not a thing. It's not a thing you can find. It is purely a relationship. And I was very thrilled to find um, when I was doing the physics aspect of this book, because I'm not a physicist, so I make no pretensions to be a physicist, but I have you know, study the works of accessible physicists. And I have a little handful of what I call tame physicists who are kind enough to be interested in my work. And when I'm about to say something, I send it to them and say, am I going to put my foot in it here? And they go, I know, it's all right. So, um, but <laughs> a, a 20th century um, physicist, probably alive still, called David Merman, uh, and he's not the only one, said that relations are prior to relata, relata just being the Latin word for things that are related. Now that doesn't compute according to the way we think. First of all, there are things, and then we, we make them into relationship. That's of course puts us in the driving seat. We make everything in this world. You know, what, what an amazing arrogance and hubris that is. But there is a wonderful thing in the, I think again in the Vedic tradition, the image of Indra's net. And Indra's net, um, you, you may be very familiar with it, but I'll say it anyway. Indra's net is the image of a net that covers the cosmos and in effect is the cosmos. And at every place where the lines cross in the net, there is a little jewel in which 
all the other cross points in the net can be seen. So every one is in a way fractally in, or, or in a way like a hologram in all the others. But the net consists of threads. Threads are just in themselves nothing. But when you put them together, you make thousands of relationships. And we focus on the crossing points and say, those are the things, those have my attention. But it's the whole net that is the reality. And that is a, a composite of relations. What I love about Whitehead's idea is that at the bottom of the cosmos that isn't stuff, there is simply a creative love that is relation and it brings things into being. It's an incredibly rich idea. And it applies so well to everything that my knowledge of human beings through being a psychiatrist, of, of my image of how the hemispheres relate to one another, um, in the neuropsychology, and it comes together with strands in philosophy and physics that say all these same things, and they're there in those ancient traditions as well. So we see a much more beautiful, creative, um, wonderful, awe-inspiring cosmos in which there are, yes, dark corners, but in which there's also a great deal of wonderful um, stuff that can inspire awe in us not this uh, you know, clapped out pointless mechanism and then we die. I mean, what, what a vision to live down to. Yes. And the possibility that each individual consciousness is a, one of those bejeweled po points of intersection exactly. is a beautiful one. And Carlo Rovelli, you know, the popular yes. quantum physicist who is atheist actually came on and he said like um, yes. that are the most as best as he could explain it at the most fundamental level of uh, reality, material reality, at least, you know, in the material world, there's nothing there at all, but relationships. It's relational mm. at the most fundamental, you know, and he's obviously was explaining it, you know, he was decoding it for me. Um, mm. So it sort of struck me that you would say that. And another time, um, you know, Eckhart Tolle, God love him, came on here, as did um, Bob Roth, who is a sort of transcendental meditation teacher who runs the David Lynch Foundation for David Lynch, who's also been on here. Everyone, everyone's been on here. And like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I told Bob... How come you didn't invite me on here earlier, Russell? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've been dragging my heels. You should have been in the first three or four. The, 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 the maiden voyage ought to have been into your mind. Um, well... What happened was that I said to, because I'm a drug addict, you know, or at least I still feel those mm. yearnings. I said to Bob yes. Roth, I want like Eckhart Tolle style transit, like Eckhart Tolle, he seems to be sort of sloshing about in bliss, you know, like he's having such a lo lovely time of it. And I said, for me, you know, mm. like I meditate a lot of the time, I'm sort of thinking and stuff and like, and I get these glimpses of the transcendent and I feel it, I feel it, it comes to me, you know. But like, uh, I, I want to be in like Eckhart Tolle's world of wonder. And um, Bob Roth, my teacher said that for you, it will be relational. For you, you will find it in relationship. You will find it between mm. people. This is where sort of bliss and elevation and transcendence and connection and all of those uh, things. What did you say yes. there earlier? Um, or compassion, uh, or compassion, yeah. humility. That, um, you know, that the, this is where you yeah. will, um, this is where you will find yeah. it. And, you know, for, like I find that, I don't know why. I mean, I guess I want to be out of my head a lot. You know, I always wanted to be out like, and like one of the, the, the ingenuity of the 12 steps, I suppose, is sort of uh, somewhat essential to it was that 
that what drug addicts are doing is not not wrong it's a sort of a they're trying to synthesize a spiritual experience that's sort of like the initial correspondence yes. between Jung yes. and Wilson I'm sure you're familiar and Gabor Mate mm. sort of on the same subject also a guest on the show said like uh that when you're talking about addiction and I suppose this must be obvious to you as a psychiatrist like that you have to recognize don't think about the negative things the addiction does think about what does it do positively what is its function and if it's bringing rapture you know like even when i think yes. about my more uh blessedly sporadic yet still intermittent struggles with something as uh, prosaic as pornography i think that you know it's an, an induction of rapture it's a sort of a very kind of a simian um anatomical instinctual clumsy natural attempt to kind of bring about a sort mm. of rapture and, it, and like there is epiphany in uh orgasm there is a moment where where mm. it becomes mm. like you know at the sort of in that pinnacle state immediately ridiculous immediately like mm. oh christ you know and like mm. the, 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 this sort of um i suppose I suppose one of the things I sort of crave from enlightenment, Ian, is sort of permanence that's antithetical to sort of almost everything that you've been alluding to and describing. Like I want something mm. to hold on to. <laughs> like, like there, mm. it's mm. done. As mm. if it could be done, as if it could be itinerized yeah. and achieved like that. But as you've said in various ways across the course of our conversation, all, everything is flow it's continually moving it's it's interrelational there is there is no there there is no there well yes uh, there is and there isn't right uh, we have to hold both of those and that's not nonsense um i believe that you know people say all is one and i say yes and all is many or all is two now what and we have to not take the easy way, which is to say one of those is right. Both of those are correct, because whatever that one is, is constantly unfolding itself. It seems to me that the business of the cosmos, the business of creation is to produce the unique and the individual that wasn't there in the blob of union at the start. It's a constant unfolding of difference um, in, you know, from, from the, um, the, 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 the sound of the sea to the shape of a peacock's feather and the colours of it. These are all things that have come out of the creation. But because they've come out of it, they're not sundered one from another. They're just enough different not to collapse into one another, but they're still part of that same wonderful whole. And so the process is starting with, at the beginning, with a, with a single unity and then moving into the differentiation within union, which is the thing I said earlier and keep on emphasizing. Um, and then, and this actually mimics the way the hemispheres work. So in a way, the, the, the right hemisphere starts by kind of, it's opening itself to something and, and perhaps finding it beautiful and special, like a piece of music that you want to play. And then you try to play it. And then you realize, actually, I've got to practice that passage of uh, 28 um, and oh I see here we have a return to the dominant or whatever it is um, and so you you construct the thing in your head and you practice with your fingers and then when you go out and give the performance you mustn't think about that even for a microsecond it's got to be out of your mind but that doesn't mean it was pointless 
it was very, very important. You'd never have got to that other one without it. So in a way, it's, it's this business of the union of what can be just the one and the many together. And I'm afraid in many religious traditions, that's short-circuited. And I, I don't think that's wise. I also don't think, since this was one of your themes about bliss, I, I certainly don't want to in any sense underestimate um, the extraordinary or inspiring nature of, as, as you refer to, orgasm and sexual love in, in, in a certain context with a certain person. It can be as transcendental as any experience that one could hope to have. And I think that for most people in a, in a godless world, the nearest they get to understanding what we're talking about can be in sexual love. And there's nothing in any way wrong with that. I mean, except the perversion of sexual love as not really love at all. But um, so I think it's very important that, you know, being a spiritually wise person isn't a picnic. It's not that you suddenly become constantly in a state of rapture. In fact, masters in the Oriental tradition say they're not important, those moments of rapture. Um, it's, it's the rest of it. And that also they would also say that they contain in their heart compassion for suffering. So the Buddha and all the great tradition of Buddhism is not about pretending that the world is not a veil of suffering. It is, which doesn't mean you can wallow in the suffering and never have happiness, but, but to be prepared for both. And I think what happens if one attains to a different way of looking at things is that the, the bad stuff doesn't destroy you anymore because you are able to find a kind of being with it and not being with it. This is, again, sounds paradoxical, but it's very much what you have to learn as a psychiatrist, because I would often spend all day with people who were suffering. And while I was listening to them, I knew I was entering into their world and their suffering. I was imaginatively feeling what it was like to be them. But if that was not going to exhaust me and destroy my ability to help, I had to be able at the end of the day to go, right, I'm putting that to one side now, and it's not going to stop me from leading my life in another key, as it were. So I think both those things are important. I worked with a therapist who had a nice saying. She would say, well, look, I see this. I feel it for you. You're down in a pit there. But it won't help for me to get down into the pit with you and wallow there because then we'll both be helpless. So I'm going to sit on the edge of the pit here and I've got a ladder and I can tell you the view from up here is better than the one from down there. And I've got sandwiches. And I think that's just such a lovely thing, you know, a very down to earth way of saying to people, there has to be this together and not together. There has to be the fusion and, you know, it's not a good relationship. You're talking about relationships. It's not a good relationship when two people are fused because then they've lost their real individuality. But it's not good if they fly apart because then they're just individual. What you want is a relationship in which each one becomes more fulfilled as the person they are through a nourishing relationship with the other person. So the relationship, once again, in this image, is creating the people that are in the relationship through the relationship. Um, so again, I see this thing as the bringing together of what are sometimes considered to be opposites, but mustn't be. Um, and many of the traditions of, 
mysticism um, have this idea that you can only reach to enlightenment or the paradise or whatever it is by going through some sort of danger, rather like the hero's journey. But that, you know, there is a snake around Eden. <laughs> um, the snake is in Eden in the Bible story, but in, um, I, th I think it's an Egyptian, an old Egyptian myth that you can, you can only get to paradise by this place that is guarded by the serpent. You have to cross and the serpent, meet the serpent. That's really good. Um, you see, it's a bit shamanic, the therapy, you know, like, uh, and is it a sort of a shamanic process? Is it a sort of a interdimensional a level shifting to treat people? And how, when it's been sort of secularized and sort of modernized, how, what kind of what kind of, do you find that you use ritual uh, and and if they are are they sort of banal rituals like you know there's sort of a drink or a box of tissues or something you know like you know like comes <laughs> self conscious about the evocation of the sublime we become mm. self conscious mm. I do like men's retreats and stuff and um, mm. sometimes in this sort of a circle moment you know it's sort of a hour we've all become a bit like ironic and sort of self and like a like a marxist idea pastiche parody too much awareness inability to be sort of authentic you know i wonder what you think about that when dealing with these well, territories well I, I think the the danger is too much self-awareness in the wrong way because there's once again as it were a left hemisphere idea of self-awareness which is kind of an unpleasantly scrutinizing eye which never allows the unconscious mind to to have its um, to fulfill itself, and ninety nine percent of everything that we do in our conscious selves are, is at the time unconscious. I mean, consciousness is not a a place. We sometimes think of it as like a tank, you know, above another tank that contains the unconscious. But it's not like, and perhaps there's a semi permeable membrane between them. But it's not like that. I think everywhere can be in a conscious or, or not. Um, if I pay attention to something very closely, like a piece of music, at that moment, everything else in the room, I'm unconscious of, but I'm aware. And if something happens, I know all about it. So we're sort of aware in an unconscious way of lots of things. It's like a spotlight moving about on the stage. When the spotlight moves, the bit of the stage before hasn't gone away. It's just no longer in the spotlight. So there's that kind of spotlight attention which brings self-awareness. And there's the other sort of more open self-awareness where you effectively allow the things that you're constantly repressing with your clever techniques and your practice things and the words you say, you're allowing all that stuff to, as I say, presence come into being in your presence for you. Um, you raise an interesting idea about ritual because I don't think I don't think I do use ritual. Well, I haven't practiced for ten years now, or probably more now. Um, but when I was, uh, I wasn't really very much involved in therapy. I was mainly um, involved in diagnosing and and seeing what somebody really needed and supervising them getting that. But I don't, I don't think there were any rituals <laughs> in it, none that I'm aware of. But there are so few rituals in our lives these days, and I think it's a vast loss 
At times, I mean, you may have lived in India and I, I've only visited, but where I have spent quite a lot of time is in Greece. And until very recently, and even now by Western European standards, the Greek world is still a somewhat enchanted world, a, a, a somewhat sacred world. And people would have little rituals that went with all the banal acts of the day. So when you light a candle for the table, there's a little prayer, you say. Um, when you get water and drink, there's a little prayer, you say. And all the little moments of the banality of every day suddenly find their place within a greater whole. And I've seen this also in um, Bali amongst, um, you, you know, the um, Hindu population there. Uh, these beautiful things, these beautiful acts and gestures of, of involving a water, water or a flower or a candle or something like that. And I know the same thing is true in the Orthodox Jewish tradition, that there are little prayers that go with the acts that one does every day. The only bit that had survived into my lifetime was people saying grace before meals. But really, I don't, well, I do know one person who does, but I mean, I, it's something again that's gone out of our lives uh, but it can be replaced by other things of course I, I know but I think what I think about rituals is that they are embodied metaphors a metaphor works at the unconscious level by bringing into your awareness something that is not spoken much as a poem um, brings into your awareness something very powerful because it hasn't been precisely spoken. If I translate it for you, the poem falls flat, much as if I have to go, well, the point in the joke was that the man thought that it was an elephant, but in fact it was a mouse. And or something like that. And then the joke is no longer funny. So all these things fail. And what one needs is these metaphors that are the business of art, of music, of, because music is metaphor as well. Um, the, it's metaphoric movement, so that when you hear a rising phrase, you can feel something in you rising. You know, the, your whole body responds to music. Your skeletal muscle contracts and relaxes when you listen to music, as well as your blood pressure changing, your heart rate changing, um, your, your sweating changing, your hair may stand up on your body. All these things are very physical, and they bring you into a place which the music is metaphorizing for you. Well, rituals are another form of embodied metaphor. And I think the loss of them is, is actually very sad. Um, but anyway, there we go. <laughs> I, 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 can, can I just do a riff for a short while on, because I was just thinking about the, the, the Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition because it takes us back to something that we touched on but didn't really quite finish on um well quite finish we didn't even get started so and we can never finish <laughs> so um <laughs> but it was this thing about the need for structure the need for boundaries the need for authority that it's not it's very very much not a wishy wash the world i'm talking about is not an easy one the one I'm talking about requires self-discipline. It requires, um, as indeed the life that you describe as having taken on, you are disciplined enough to go to meetings, to follow certain things that you know are good for you. And so what I'm saying is not let it all hang out and yeah, man, and all that, because in fact, that's 
that comes from a very superficial place, actually. The, the right hemisphere is the one that is actually inhibiting such extreme reactions. It's always going, yeah, but there might be this going on here as well. It's the one that actually opens your eyes to things. And we very much need to have all that slightly rule-bound stuff. But it can go badly wrong when it becomes fundamentalism. I know because it's written in this book and it's entirely right and everybody else is wrong. And, you know, you must do this 3,000 times a week. <laughs> Whatever it is, all this kind of legalistic thinking is to do with the left hemisphere. There are rules of this. They are absolutely inviolable. For heaven's sake, let's not have any fun. What's that about laughter? Um, dance, music, get rid of it. No, it's all there in a, in a book and you must read that book and ingest it and it holds all the truth. Well, if you don't see everything like that, but see religion as possibly a portal to the most glorious uh, writings, which are contextualized historical documents, but very beautiful myth mythologies, which doesn't mean they're not true. I'm not saying anything about them being untrue. A myth can be very true. Um, that can bring you to see music that is, you know, otherwise you wouldn't have heard. I mean, one of the most staggering things for me, not being brought up in a family where there was any whiff of religion, was hearing for the first time the, the music of the Renaissance in a church, you know, listening to the very beautiful polyphonic unaccompanied music uh, and hearing plain song and things like that. I mean, these are just staggering experiences. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> what I was trying to say is that we in our lives need both structure and flexibility. We need both tradition and not ossification. We need to be, as you said, on the edge, or perhaps you didn't say it, but I think you meant it, on the edge between order and chaos, which is the fruitful place. And in um, the Judaic, uh, in the Kabbalah, um, they think that there are two sides to understanding. I can't, I think they're called Bina and Chochmah. But anyway, one of them is very much the left hemisphere's more regular, systematic, linear way of understanding. And Chochmah is the more unbounded, mystical way of understanding. And we need both of them. They're said to be friends that shall never part. So that's rather good. <laughs> it's very beautiful thank you so much we have to end this conversation here because of um you know time which i think we've agreed yes. is a real thing and uh, um, but there's so many like, i'll just give you like here are some of my favorite quotes uh being being spiritually being a spiritually wise person is not a picnic i think that's one of the things i'll i'll, I'll take away from this i enjoyed our conversation about embodied metaphors i never got to ask about post-structuralism lacan the nature of language and the, the symbolic nature of language and the real and how that sort of relates to all this stuff i never got to ask what side of the brain is addiction playing out in but i never got to ask what kind of brain do i have because sometimes i feel like i'm actually very very left brain very analytical very self-conscious even though i you know have a sort of hippie flair and like um and like um also i was thinking about sort of like how the sort of countercultural movement like became sort of what do I want to say, diluted into hedonism and individualism and lost its kind of roaring faith the counterculture dissipated in a... so there's lots of things well, there. there's lots of things there that i'm 
on the whole, modestly happy that we didn't get into <laughs> particularly too much. This has to be a left brain or right brain thing. I mean, the trouble with writing a book like this is, you know, somebody comes to dinner and they go, I'm sorry, I'm a bit late. Um, I, I found difficulty finding a parking place. Probably my right hemisphere not working or something. And I go, uh, yes, <laughs> or no. You know. Uh, but actually what I would love is that one day we carry on this conversation, which is like everything a flow that is in process and maybe when when my book comes out you'll know have something more to go on and we can get together and do it yeah that'd be lovely we could do if you want if you want me to do a live event with you i'd happily do that if there are such things as live events and um well quite i'd be happy to come onto <laughs> your youtube channel and um that would be fun one thing before i go do you know um rod tweedy's book um the god of the left hemisphere which is about blake Oh my it's, god! No, I think I you might be interested in that because I think you're interested in Blake, aren't you? Yes, I am interested in Blake. I, I'm really I'm baffled by him and love him, and I love in particular I I like Jungian uh, analysis, and I uh, read this yes. book by Erdinger on um, Blake's um, engravings of the Book of Job, and there's like you know like right. some of the stuff we've been discussing. He gets into this sort of. Um, sort of giddy peninsula of truth when talking about the behemoth and the leviathan and this sort of terror oh man there's this bit where the that where that when writing of blake because and this what's beautiful is the synthesis you know when you were talking about these different diff disciplines yes blake does these drawings like he draw he engraves the behemoth like this sort of skinless yes. idiot appetite creature and like the leviathan is this sort of dragon but i'm more scared yes. by the behemoth myself in these engravings and and um he he says he says he says like um there's this bit of analysis where he says that we if we are not good that that god is not good that that, that it's not determined that that our goodness makes god good and like there was something in it like of the the uncanny in that that sort of chilled me that's very interesting but anyway um rod's book rod tweedy's book um he was writing about the left hemisphere because he thought that Blake was talking about that when he talked about um, Eurism, your reason, you know. Yeah, 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 uh, that, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and this division of the brain. And he didn't know my book because he was writing his book while I was writing my book. But right towards the end, he got hold of the manuscript of my book because I sent it to him and he rewrote his book. But there you go. <laughs> um, but I think it, it, it's an amazing amazingly rich area that i gave the annual blake lecture in 2016 did you um which was i think peter philip pullman rather sort of organized wow. and um and it's on on i'll get and not that you've got time to do anything do except time. you're such a such a busy man but i'll ask mary to send you the link for for that talk it's only an hour so, yeah. i would love that oh, thank yeah. you thank you very much bye-bye now bye okay Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ian McGilchrist. We've got one more cat since since I last spoke to you. Um, two kittens now. Hey, so remember, um, you can communicate with me on Instagram about this or on Twitter or um, anywhere, really. I'm on all those things. TikTok. I'm not Jen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> come see me on TikTok. Go to russellbrand.com if you want to come see me live for my show for free. It's going to be good. And also, that, if you've not listened to my book, Revelation, that's available on order. You can check that out on all. 
And if you're not in my community, get in my community. And if you enjoy this episode with the wonderful Ian McGilchrist, who will be coming on again, AJ, and let's have, like, let's work out what repeat guests we want. All right. You do it. <laughs> okay. You don't think you have a laziness problem, do you? You? Yeah. Me? Yeah. No. Do you, you're a hard worker? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you think I have a laziness problem? We're all hard workers, aren't we? On Wednesdays. <laughs> Do you think after the rest of the time, come up with the ideas, mate. Coming up with all the ideas. What about my ideas? Well, we're still waiting. <laughs> Give them in. <laughs> Get them out. Express some. No. Why not? It's better to keep them in, isn't it? No, get them out. <laughs> what do you do when you have a day off? Why are you curious now? <laughs> yeah, but I'm suspicious. <laughs> yeah, what do you do? What do you get up to? Stuff. Hello, Russ. Tell the listeners. <laughs> Sometimes I don't do anything. What do you do when you do do something? <laughs> um, <laughs> learn it to do stuff. <laughs> Look, colour box happened. Yeah, colour box. box wouldn't have happened if I'm non day off. Colour box has been a great advance. Yeah, see, I have. I, I what do you do? So if you do content with other people, eh? Sometimes, but not always. Well, Jim, we'll talk about this off. <laughs> Robert McFarlane. Everything about Robert is great. Why have you put that? Because if you look at the other two, then put us. A sentence or a word after them. Michael Mead, myth. Uh, yeah. Lisa Marciano, young. Those are some good episodes. And Robert McFarlane, everything. Everything's just lovely about him, isn't it? Yeah. Going to be friends with him. And keep checking my YouTube video for new, uh, YouTube channel for new videos. Now there's three. There's a football one. Football is nice. There's awakening, spiritual stuff. There's the political one. Mm-hmm. You want to start a channel, Jen? <laughs> no. <laughs> what would I do on my channel? <laughs> well, no, maybe you should produce Paul Foot. Someone's got to talk about my Mondays. Who's going to produce the Paul Foot? Let's get. It's good. All right, we'll do a we'll do a creative brainstorm later. I can see what? you're on fire. Why? Why are we doing a creative brainstorm? We've got to create Why? new content. Are you just. I am making. I just started the football podcast with you. You're doing really well. <laughs> are you trying to fill up too many of my hours? So I have to go to five days. <laughs> Is that what you're trying to do? Jen, when it gets to when we all move into a community no. together. Don't, like, don't try and act all coy. No. Since she was 12 years old. 15. Well, I don't know what you're doing. The yeah, but I, I, didn't, I was just as unenthusiastic then. I remember if you'd you, seen me, I was just on my laptop, on my computer, because there was no laptops. Then. Jen, you can act cool if you want, but I obviously connected a little pipsqueak over there in some village in Ireland, watching Big Brother's Big Mouth, starting a little fan site at 15 years old, yeah. coming over, coming to my gigs, sometimes with some thin face, faced what? boys. I mean, Adrian. Turned up with little oddities from time to time. And here you still are, Jane. So just you keep... keep <laughs> but isn't it nice having uh, four days? <laughs> Continuity. Yeah, I think another baby's coming. All right, I'm going to sign off for now. Go watch this little bit of labour and we'll do some Above the Noise podcast. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. You can listen carefully. You can hear a cat giving birth in the background. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin Goodbye.